Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Phil Tiger. Greetings, hello, 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 hi, welcome to the Slacker Podcast. My name is Phil Taggart. I am six foot Northern Irish Cub Scout quiz runner up 1996. What else can I tell you? I guess that's me. I've never really achieved anything since 1996, apart from maybe this podcast. Uh, and you're listening to it right now, the finest music podcast coming out of the UK and Ireland right now. If this is your first time listening to the Slacker podcast, you're very, very welcome. Welcome into the, the comforting bosom of music chat on a podcast. Um, as as it is a podcast, expect um, deep ramble, um, some um, non sequiturs, some deep digressions. And really what you get with the Slacker podcast is a really quality weekly roster of great, great guests. Um, uh, as of recent, on the Slacker podcast, we've had Haim, uh, we, which was last week. We had Leanne Le Havas the week before, Jaden Smith the week before that, Bob Geldof the week before that, Sleaford Mods the week before that, KSI the week before that, Phineas the week before that, Johnny Barrell the week before I can't go any faster, Phoebe Bridges the week before that, Run the Jewels. <sighs> Um, so this week, uh, we will be getting to our guest Jarvis, um, Jarvis Cocker. But before we get to that, this 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 feels like a a week that we need to mention something in the in the world of music because it's it's my favorite award ceremony, my favorite music prize, which is the Mercury Music Prize because it's the only one that I don't know. It's the only one that just re- like really fully celebrates the 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 full project the 10 tracks, the 14 tracks, that just a full album. And it feels like the most, um, uh, I don't know, artistically credible of, of all of the sort of award ceremonies and prizes and all of the rest of that pomp. I always get very massively invested in the Mercury Music Prize. And this year is, is no different. And I was kind of going through everything going, I wonder who's going to get what. Um, and I was looking at the shortlist today and like on there, you've got Anna Meredith, Charlie XCX, Dua Lipa, Georgia, uh, Kano, Lanterns on the Lake, Laura Marling, Michael Kiwanuka, Moses Boyd, Porridge Radio, Sports Team, 
Stormzy. It's it's pretty quality. It's pretty quality. A lot of them I've played on the radio. Uh, a lot of them you would hear on like sex music. Some some just like, I, like all of them on there are brilliant. Like I, I think like there's lanterns on the lake I need to listen to, and the Moses Boyd. I've actually heard half the Moses Boyd album, and sports team. I wouldn't be the biggest fan of. Uh, they're they're good at what they do. It's just not my my bag, and that's that's fine. Um, who do I think is going to get the Mercury Music Prize? I'm going to put the house on Charlie Axiax. I think like she is uh one of the most important pop writers and just pop phenoms in in the UK. She like I don't know like she she I feel like she's always been massively under appreciated because like she she i think she should be a lot bigger than than she actually is don't get me wrong she's like sort of queen of the underground but i think i don't know i just think that she's massively 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 talented as a songwriter and as somebody who challenges the conventions of pop in a in a really really interesting way so i think how i'm feeling now which was a, a record i think one of the only sort of records that was made in lockdown that kind of didn't feel like it was cheesy because a lot of people are releasing stuff that's come out of lockdown now and it's like you know that's that's their selling point and it, and it feels like a million years ago um that they're talking about oh this is a lockdown record and you're like oh god that's so so depressing to re- remember lockdown as we go into the flipping second wave of it we're five minutes away from a the government well the government doing a big talk here at 11 o'clock as i record this um so i uh, i'm gonna go and listen to that so uh, but i'm gonna leave you right now with um this week's podcast um which is with jarvis which i'm gonna get to in a minute sorry super, super annoying but if you enjoyed the podcast um go and sign up to the the slacker community on patreon and there's all sorts of extra bonus party stuff on there and if you make music it's quite useful as well because we're reviewing tracks on on the patreon uh there's gonna be a patreon podcast exclusive where we just do podcasts where you guys ask the questions and sort of come up with ideas for the the podcast it's almost like a two-way conversation really so if you want to join the 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 patreon community for as little as two dollars a month which is absolutely flip all. Is that like a pound fifty or something? Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash slacker podcast. And yeah, it's you guys that are keeping the lights on at Slacker HQ. And I appreciate you for it. Um, yeah, I, I was very, a little bit nervous, I guess, for this week's podcast because uh, I've been a huge pulp fan since I was a, a little nipper running about the house um, back in Oma in Northern Ireland singing um, Disco 2000 and, and Common People. Uh, there used to be a weird chart that would come on ITV in the middle of the day, and it didn't like it felt like some sort of unofficial chart. But I just remember that Pulp would always come on it, and I would always lose my shit every single time it would come on. So it's great to have um, Jarvis. He was uh, as charming as you would imagine Jarvis to be, and here is the podcast with Jarvis on the Slacker Podcast in three, two, one. Joining us on the Slacker podcast, we have got Jarvis. Hello, how you doing? I'm not too bad, thanks. How is uh, is it? Is it typical summer rain where you are? Because it's absolutely pissing it down in Brighton as we record this. 
I'd describe it more as a drizzle or even a mizzle. You know, like when it's so fine, it's like almost like a mist. <laughs> yeah, I it's love. Quite nice, actually. I live up on top, like at the top of the the hill. Brighton's a very hilly place, and it's it's like one of those like computer games that you play where the zombies come out and get you because like it, it's pretty misty pretty much half the year. Right. So is that? I mean, is that pleasant? If you're into zombie uh, apocalypses, then it's like you know it's prime retail. <laughs> Right. How um how how have you been getting on recently? How's how's things? Well, I don't know if you've heard about it. There's been this lockdown thing going on. Everybody's been going on about it. I know it's all the rage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been lucky. I'm I'm kind of in the countryside in between Sheffield and Manchester. I'm quite near to my family up here. I can't really complain. You know, I've I've got a garden. I can walk around it like a teddy bear as they say and um so yeah i'm i've had a compared to a lot of people i think i've had a very cushy lockdown yeah i like i think like anybody who's got a garden i don't think anybody would have seen maybe a year ago how how important a garden would have been when you're sitting in the house or like especially if you're like in flats or whatever like it must be very tough yeah, I mean, I've even got into gardening slightly. I've got a vegetable patch now. What are you growing? Oh, what am I not growing? <laughs> I've got potatoes, sprouts, broccoli, leeks. I'm going across it from right to left here. Um, carrots, <laughs> uh, beetroot, um, courgettes, and tomatoes. That's great. Do you know what? All around the all around the Cocker household for the for the apocalypse when we can't get food anymore. We know where exactly. We know where to exactly. go. Perfect. But you have, you have to know the password. <laughs> we tried growing um, spring onions in in this house, and we got like a, a puppy about two months ago, and the puppy got in and ate the spring onions, and apparently they're toxic to the puppy, so we did rush it to the vet. So that was the end of my uh, growing. <laughs> so I think I'll be over to yours for for dinner. I think. What, so what happened? Did they have to like pump the puppy's stomach or something? I just had to follow it around make, and making note of its stools and how watery they were <laughs> and how green they were. <laughs> you must have had terrible breath as well. <laughs> Absolutely awful. But I mean, like, there's that, like, the idea of growing food, um, a lot of people find quite relaxing, like, it's quite therapeutic. No, it is. It's, it's amazing that you put a seed in the ground and then like three weeks later something's growing out of it it's it is a bit mind-blowing actually i've never i mean my grandfather when i was a kid he he like grew stuff like that you know he had a rhubarb patch and all stuff like that and i used to help him when i was a real tiny kid Mm. but you know as soon as i got older i thought it was the squarest thing ever so uh but now that it's a matter of like life or death survival you know I'm, i'm all over it again can can you sort of justify where you are at life and on how much you can identify with Alan Titchmarsh? <laughs> Probably, yes. That's a good uh, that's a good benchmark you've got there. <laughs> Isn't it? Like um so the domestic disco uh, just before we get into any of the rest of it. My like I mean we've like we've been enjoying it in this house but my missus gets dressed up and actually gets her hula hoop out like uh, and that's not a euphemism for the dirtier listeners out there um like she she gets her hula hoop on sparkly dress and just sits in the in the living room just hula hooping for hours what or as long, well, long as you doing it 
Well, that's good. That's like the that's our perfect demographic mm. there. I mean, you know, it was. I think it came out a little bit from. I was supposed to be getting ready to go on tour, and then that got cancelled, and uh, and then my girlfriend had had been watching this guy who was doing like an Instagram live thing, DJing from his garage somewhere in New York. And the thing that um, impressed me was just that like people were making comments as he was playing records, you know? So it seemed like, it seemed like the first thing that was like live uh, where, where it felt like, you know, somebody was performing to an audience. And um, so I just nicked his idea. <laughs> it feels perfect. Like uh, in terms of like, like the music you're playing is designed to be played in a club but when you take that music and you talk about it on the radio it loses something because it's not in the right environment and this is coming like you know i'm a radio host that's my job but like you know playing a club record on the radio is never the same as playing a club record in a club but having the comments on means that you can you've got the best of both worlds you got that sort of instant reaction side and you've got that sort of vibe side yeah and hopefully people can turn up their smart speaker or whatever they're listening to it on and jump around. And that was, yeah, I was kind of surprised because we, we tried it out and then the, the tipping point for me came in the first program we did. My girlfriend's favorite song is uh, dance this mess around by the B-52s. So I put that on and she started dancing and then I thought, all right, well, I don't like to see a woman dance alone. So I got up and started dancing as well. <laughs> And it felt like it did actually feel like we were in a club for a minute and it was a real release, you know, and that's what we all needed during those times when you needed a time when you just forgot about what was going on and just concentrated on actually dancing to the one, two, three, four, you know, and that's a a merciful release sometimes. It really is. Like there there was a couple of times around the first month or two of lockdown that I think the first time I got on Zoom with my friends and we all got trashed maybe on on a Friday evening um, I woke up the next day with a split and hangover, like, and I had convinced myself that I'd been out. Like, I, like in my head, I'd been out. I'd walked around pubs, and I'd like had a big night out, and I couldn't remember how I got to bed, although I may have just like walked ten meters. Um, but also the, I've done one or two streams of like DJ sets, right? And they're so stressful. <laughs> it keeps getting taken down, and your stream keeps going. Like, did you find that as well? Oh God, yeah. It was. I mean, because. Because I've been mollycoddled for many years, you know, being in a band, you have like a road crew to plug everything in for you. Mm -hmm. Suddenly I was thrown back on having to plug everything in and try and make it work myself. So the first, I think after the, during the first one, I blew the power amp up uh, at some (laughs) point. So that was the end of that first one. I think things kept getting unplugged. I think there was one point where I was kind of running around the living room just shouting slag. (laughs) <laughs> at this piece of equipment that wouldn't work you know um it was super stressful because it always seems to be like you can test it out and everything's okay and as soon as you press broadcast live everything just falls apart yeah and um anyway I, eventually i did what i should have done in the first place which was ring our sound man up and just get him to tell me what to do <laughs> unfortunately we'd already done three by that point yeah, they they kept building as well. Like I remember, like I remember, like my my sister like was really excited because she was watching it before me, and she shouted upstairs. She was like, "What? Well, they've come downstairs. They've added a disco ball." <laughs> we did, yeah. Well, I kept finding things. Um, I had a laser down in my studio that doesn't work 
particularly well. There was one week when I was having to solder that like about five minutes before we were going on. Um, and then I found this laser torch that we used to have. Then somebody lent us a smoke machine. That was that was when it really started to go high, high production values then. Mm. Um, yeah, it was nice to try and add a, a, a different thing each time. And so, to make it feel like it it was a clubby atmosphere, you know. With the, the Slacker podcast, we kind of like sort of jump about the place um i mean there's no real rhyme or reason to podcasts anyway i suppose a question before before we get into it really is like uh, how, like you've been a radio host you've done shows in australia you've uh, like for our uk listeners like everybody knows the sunday service um have you thought about getting into the podcast game and if so have you got an idea for it um well i've kind of got into it slightly um surreptitiously there's a show that i do for radio four called uh, wireless nights and they're all available as podcasts you know they're, they're just like half an hour things where um it's really me being a bit nosy as to what people get up to at night so that varies like we had a guy who just liked to go to his shed at night supposedly to watch for a badger that came onto his allotment, but actually just to drink on his own without <laughs> his wife knowing about it. That always so, seems to be the, the way, isn't it? Yeah. So, so we just like had audio of him getting progressively more drunk during the <laughs> night. Um, but then other, other things like uh, somebody who went out trying to take pictures of foxes at night, people who work on the underground at night, you know, who, who tidy it all up. Just, just a, a night watchman. I was a night watchman for a night. That was quite good. I was looking after a, a tower block on Euston Road, like walking around, shining a torch into darkened rooms, and you know all that kind of <laughs> making sure there were no intruders in the vicinity. Over time, you you become able to do that. Is the is the perfect balance then really in the middle of of kind of ha- trying to sort out the world's issues with with humor and with sort of strange lyrics and strange takes well it's it's an easy it's a pat or easy answer to say yes but i do think it has to be somewhere in the middle you know like yeah. i don't really like works of art that haven't got some you know to have a little bit of humor in there i think is important because yeah i think Humor is really fundamental to people. It's, it's how you kind of deal with sometimes with quite challenging situations. If you can make a joke out of it in some way, you kind of neutralize it. So I think it's quite important. It, it seems to humanize things. I, but then again, I don't. I don't like joke songs. You know, I don't. I was never a fan of you know things like lip up fatty or lip up fat. You know, I, I can't bear things like that or whatever. <laughs> what do What do you call the guy um, from up your way with the used to wear this like the the paper mache head he used to do all the the comedy songs oh frank sidebottom frank sidebottom that's it i was quite like he always did comedy songs and i quite enjoyed them but i enjoyed them in the same way i enjoyed like lo-fi recordings and stuff it was just more of a sort of peering through the window enjoying it if you know what i mean yeah i mean i never got to meet that guy apparently he was quite a strange person and i think he did take it very seriously yeah well, you Often keep, you find that with 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 comedians, you know. 
Oh yeah, oh, like I mean, I've met a lot of comedians, um, and like when on my radio show, I've had a lot, a lot come true and stuff. And they're as much crack as what is it? My friend used to say, "There's much crack as blood in your piss." Um, <laughs> some of the ones have come true. Um, but what 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 song has made you laugh out loud and you remember as being like a real funny song? Like the one that comes to my mind right now. Now you've written a, a few of them as well, but like Vicar in the Tutu by the smiths always makes me laugh what just because of the title well it's it's not like the just the title it's the it's the line isn't it um oh no sorry frankly mr shankly sorry it's the line um i never knew you wrote poetry i never knew you wrote, wrote such bloody awful poetry i just remember mm. hearing that for the first time and pissing myself laughing going that's just a banging line <laughs> do you know yeah um You've got me now. I'm trying to think of a of a of a line that uh, has made me laugh. Well, maybe I like. I mean, I don't know whether it's particularly would make me laugh, but I do like it when a a line in a song takes you by surprise. I remember being in a club, you know, years ago, and listening to that Born Slippy song, and thinking, "Oh, it really sounds like they're shouting lager, lager, lager," and then I just suddenly <laughs> realised. They are actually shouting lager, lager, lager. I'm just thinking, you can't, you can't sing lager in a song. That's just not proper lyrics, you know. <laughs> so I like it when somebody does something like that, which you just really wouldn't have seen coming, you know. Well, like they were the weird one because, like, obviously, growing up in in Northern Ireland is very much like growing up in the the north of England. Like, we're all educated by our bigger brothers' record collections, and it, like they tended to be around my age. Like, you know, the stone, like. Bigger Brothers listening to the Stone Roses and and Underworld and stuff like that. I never knew that Underworld actually had another song other than Born Slippy. And then when I got older and listened to them, I was like, actually, they're pretty intelligent and quite good musicians. Yeah, yeah. There's much more to them than Lager <laughs> or Mega Mega White Thing. Um, <laughs> what was what was the first record that you ever bought with your own earned money? Right. Well, <clears throat> I think well the first LP that I bought was David Bowie changes one Bowie that it's like a greatest hits compilation. It's got like a black and white picture of him on the front. I actually wanted to buy <clears throat> the Stranglers first LP, but I was scared that my mum would tell me off because it was like a punk record. <laughs> <clears throat> so I thought, I thought David Bowie was a more, it was a safer bet. What, what era of Bowie was that? Well, it was, I guess it must have been around, if I was considering buying the Stranglers, then it must have been like 1977. So I would have been like 13, 14 years old. And it was a compilation. So it, it went, I think the first track on it is Changes. Mm. And it goes through the 70s stuff. And the latest thing on it is like Golden Years and stuff like that. Were you bothered with punk rock when, when it came out? Like, I mean, suppose 13 is pretty, pretty good age to be taken away with it, right? It was, I'll always be grateful for it really, because I'd wanted to be in a band since I was like, I don't know, seven or something like that. I used to watch the Beatles films when they were, they always used to show Beatles movies on Boxing Day at half 10 in the morning. So I used to make sure I was up and watch those. And I was kind of obsessed with the Beatles and, I knew that I wanted to be in a band, but I had no real idea of how to do it. Like I say, it wasn't on the school curriculum at all. 
and uh, there seemed to be no clues. And uh, and when I looked at, like, so I once had a look at the Beatles songbook, you know, and it just, it made me feel so depressed because it seemed like every song had about 25 chords in it. And so there's just no way I'm ever yeah. going to be able to do that. So then punk music came along and, you know, there's that famous thing like, here's one chord, here's another, here's another, now go and form a band. And suddenly musical ability didn't matter. In fact, it was kind of almost a disability if you could play properly. It was more about the attitude of it or something. So it was, absolutely perfect for me suddenly the fact that i couldn't actually play wasn't an issue uh so that was it i just formed a band and we stumbled around doing it was what was the first band called it was called pulp right from the beginning oh it right was so just... like you've been in pulp oh, well i mean like you know obviously pulp's not going anymore but like that was the very first band there was no iterations or anything beforehand yeah it was it was actually called arabicus pulp at the start because I think we were in an economics lesson and they'd given us a copy of the Financial Times to look at. <laughs> and, you know, they've got like commodities in the back and mm. and we were just looking and there's something called Arabicus pulp, which I think is something to do with coffee, you know. Yeah, it makes it sound like you you go to Eton, like these are all like on your break, <laughs> reading the Financial Times with like a nice little like, yeah. cigar or whatever. No, it really didn't happen that much <laughs> at school. It was just like yeah. they showed it you in the economics lesson. I still don't understand it at all. How how long objectively were you rubbish for before you actually became a good band? Because um, no, well, no, no band's a, long, a good band from the start. No, we weren't. We were we were bad. We. As I say, we didn't really have an idea of what we were doing, so we would just make a noise, and then eventually it start. You get bored of making noise because you start like getting a headache. So then you try and make it into a song. But it, yeah, the first concert that we ever played that was in 1980. We were on like a local bands festival bill, and. Uh, I think we were we were popular from the start, actually, but really because of our ineptitude, because it was the first time we'd been on a proper stage. So up to that point, we'd been playing through the hi-fi at home, and uh, suddenly we were playing through amplifiers. We'd, and, and like, for instance, the bass played, his bass started feeding back, and he he just didn't know what to do. So he just walked away from the speaker, but unfortunately he didn't look where he was going and he fell off stage. <laughs> so yeah. all this, I think people would just be musing it. Who are these idiots? Like I was the oldest. I was, I was 16 at that point And the drummer was like 14 and they just thought, I suppose they just, we, they found us charming in a way. And uh, so then we just got invited to go and play concerts in pubs and stuff, which was great because we were still underage and we weren't allowed in pubs. Um, so it, it was kind of like we were liked for being rubbish from the start. <laughs> and, and, and in some ways, when we started to learn, when we learned to play a bit better, people kind of lost interest. <laughs> this is right. Like, you know, this is because the, the comedy aspect had disappeared. Yeah, you, you said lost a little, little if you're like allure some of the magic some of the magic had run off um i really like i mean i played in bands for my whole like god from about 14 till about 24 um 
And I love the romance. Like, thinking back now, I mean, at the time, I fucking hated it. But at the time, like, now thinking back, the, the idea of everybody's amps busting, people swapping amps, like, fights over who's using what symbols, um, nobody showing up, loads of people showing up. Like, those local band nights, I think, are some of, like, really what I think bands are, in essence. Like, a band to me almost isn't somebody that's playing on the Royal Albert Hall uh, or playing O2 Academy. A band to me is almost standing up on that stage, like looking around for a, a buzzing cable. Yeah, it's all that stuff. I mean, the first time you play a concert, it's just, it's mind-blowing how much can go wrong. Like you mentioned leads there. All you've got to do is step on the cable and it comes out. Like you, you... For me, as a singer, it's the microphone cable that's always doing me. You know, you, you see, if you happen to stand on the microphone cable and then you pull the microphone up, start singing, it will just uh, unplug itself. So then you kind of really kind of over emoting into this thing that's not plugged in, and it looks really bad. But it's but it, like you say, that kind of stuff. I'm really glad that we went through all that stuff because. I think you're right in that it is kind of the essence of being in a band because through that process of trial and error, you learn how to deal with that and you learn what's important about being on stage. It's not always about playing everything perfectly and everything, the sound being pristine and all stuff like that. It's you're just trying to make a connection with the people in the audience, you know, and I think, you know, things going wrong is part of life. <laughs> it's it's humanity. Speaking of which, have you have you ever had like a, a bad injury like performing live? Like, I mean, I've seen you leap around the stage. Like, there's no way that you couldn't have at least twisted an ankle in the time that you've been playing. Well, touch wood. Um, I've never had a massively bad injury. I, the one I can remember is we played in Japan once. And it was a strange stage. It was like made up of um, panels, different panels. And at some point I'd been jumping around and then I was on the floor and then my finger got caught in between where two of these panels joined up and it really pinched it <laughs> really hard. And then I th it, it was really painful. I couldn't really play the guitar anymore. So the next day we went to like an acupuncturist and he got this thing. It was really weird. It was like, <clears throat> it looked like a cigarette end. And he put it on the end of the finger that was a, affected. Sorry, I'm going to have to cough here. <clears throat> he put it on the end of the finger that was affected. And he set fire to it. And it, he <laughs> said something. And, I, and the translator said, when your finger gets really hot and painful, tell him and he'll take it off. <laughs> so I just... Sat there for about ten minutes, and the finger was getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And then eventually went, oh, oh, "Can it come off now, please?" And I was really thinking, "This is absolute, you know, quackery or whatever." Yeah. But uh, amazingly, it worked, and and I was fine, and I could play the guitar again because we had we had another concert that night, and I was fine. Wow. There you go. I'm I'm surprised you didn't bottle this guy and just like take take him around with you everywhere. He sounds it sounds like the, the healer that you need. <laughs> yeah, it was it was good. He, he also did that thing. Have you seen that thing sometimes? Did they call it cupping? <laughs> oh, isn't, isn't that where they like suction cup 
your yeah. back with is it with stones or is it with like air? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, it's I, those, I've seen no, it. It, they're like you know, if you get like a posh yogurt and it comes in like a glass <laughs> thing rather than a plastic thing. What's that, a like ramekin? Little, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ramekins. Yeah. So they're like that, like a glass ramekin. But uh, I went down for this therapy with our then tour manager who was a bit overweight. And uh, <laughs> he decided to have this um, cupping thing, which is supposed to be relaxing. And so they did it on his back, and there were all these ramekins like full of flesh that had like sucked up from his back, <clears throat> and he looked like a stegosaurus, you know, like uh, those dinosaurs. And uh, it's always stuck in my mind. It, it, well, it took my mind off my poorly finger anyway. It might be like a, I've got an image like it's like a facelift except for your body, so he probably looks really thin. Where it's all like it's all put, pulled back into like some sort of girdle, some human girdle. Um, yeah. So, like one of, one of the things I wanted to ask you about uh, when, like, there was probably the first question on the, the sheet when I was prepping this was like the the relationship you had with uh, one of my idols and one of my sort of um, somebody I look I looked up to a lot. Anyways, um, John Peel, he's always had a massively soft spot for for your music and was a, probably one of the earliest champions of pulp, wasn't he? <clears throat> well, it's a funny story with him actually because. He was. I mean, I wouldn't have had a musical career without him. And I think I can say that categorically, really, because what happened was that the very first demo that Paul recorded, say, like, you know, maybe a year after that song that I played you earlier, uh, we went to record a demo. This guy had a studio set up in his house. It was like a semi-detached house, and you had to record in his bedroom, which was a bit strange. But... Anyway, we, we, we did a demo, and then John Peel used to do these roadshow things where he would go around uh, university and polytechnic sites and play in the uni bar and stuff like that. And so I saw he was doing one at Sheffield Polytechnic. So I, I ran off a cassette of this demo that we'd done, and I, I like I hand drew a sleeve for it and all that kind of thing. Went to this uh, roadshow that he was doing, waited till he'd had finished and then I followed him out into the car park <laughs> and uh, didn't mug him but just said uh, sorry Mr Peel but you know it is a demo tape of my band would you you know I'd like to give it to you would you have a listen to it and he said oh yeah I'll have a listen to it on the way back home and then weirdly enough he actually did that and we got a phone call maybe three days later asking us to go down and do a John Peel session wow. down in London <laughs> which was just like mind-blowing because i'd been listening to the that's how i discovered punk music and stuff like that he was the only person playing it back in those days so that, that was i listened to that yeah sorry i listened to that show every single night so it was like going to heaven being asked to, to do that i mean that's incredible anybody who's listened to this outside of the uk and, and doesn't know who john peter is like the, probably the biggest legend in alternative music um anywhere <laughs> i would say he did a show on, on radio one um and back in those days like playing alternative music or playing um unsigned music or or taking a chance on sonically different music wasn't the the usual like radio one i mean i work for radio one i do a show on radio one now but um radio one back then was full of people wearing jumpers and uh 
probably playing the least uh, exciting music possible. They all talk like this. They all go, here's the top. As the ch- numbers get smaller, the hits get bigger. That sort of shit, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when when you played that Peel session, did it feel like, right, this is the catalyst to stardom now? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It did because we were still at school. Um, so I think by now I was 17 and um, we went down and did that. And I was just convinced that's what convinced me to just be in a band as a, as a career. So when we got to the end of school, I just said to my mum, I'm not going to college, you know, I'm going to be a pop star. And, uh, Unfortunately, all the rest of the band, their parents just laughed at them when they said that, and and they all had to go off to university. And so I ended up in Sheffield all alone <laughs> with my dream. And then and then the tough years began because then uh, then John Peel never played anything by Paul until about nearly twenty, <laughs> well, about fifteen years later. Uh, so it was weird. He he, he encouraged me, and then. I stayed in Sheffield and, and carried on with different lineups of a band with getting more and more unsuccessful until I finally <laughs> left Sheffield uh, at the end of the 80s. How many uh, like versions of Pulp is there? Because like, obviously you say like when your friends go to college when you're 18 or 19, you have to get a new band in, don't you? Like, so there must be, there must be a really... Um, technical graph out there of pulp past and present members? Yeah, the, you know what? I don't know exactly how many, but there must be a lot. I mean, bass players, we used to go through, you know, like in Spinal Tap, it's always the drummers that yeah. disappear. But it, in pulp, it was always the bass players would disappear. Um, You're not quite as bad as Mark E. Smith. And the no, no. But that would be difficult to be as bad as him. <laughs> he, he seemed to sack somebody every week. I didn't really sack people, but we just had strange people. Like, um, we we once had this keyboard player called Captain Sleep. I can't even remember what his real name was. 
but we called him Captain Sleep because he just was asleep or when he, well, occasionally he would be awake on stage, but like whenever you were in the van traveling anywhere, he was just always asleep. Yeah. I think he was just like terminally depressed that he was trying to not be alive in the world. Maybe he was like a narcoleptic or something. He just kept poking oh, yeah, his maybe, okay, actually, yeah, maybe I'm being really unkind <laughs> and he actually, had, he actually had a clinical problem. I don't know. Um, well, is there, did you have like crazy industry people working for you as well? Like a management? Cause like, like even this, the short time that I was in my band, we had a, a sort of crusty styled hippie manager who was, had to get the sack pretty sharpish. We had another manager who kind of ripped us off a bit. Like, I mean, you kind of meet a lot of weird people on the industry side too. Well, our first manager that was just the, a kid at school who was even worse musically than us. So he said, well, I can't be in the band, so I'll just be the manager. <clears throat> but, you know, we weren't even playing concerts. So all it was was just so he could hang around with us uh, and come to rehearsals and just sit there drinking whilst we played. Uh, and then after that, yeah, we did eventually get a manager. But I was lucky that, I mean, I mean, I never had a really terrible manager. There was once one manager who he tried to encourage me to write a song like Wham. Wham Wham were quite new at that time. I think Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go had just become a big hit. And he thought that I could write pop songs like that. And um, there's an there's a early pulp single called Everybody's Problem which is, I wouldn't recommend anybody to listen to it, but <laughs> the thing about it is that that was our attempt to write a song. I kind of went along with it because he was a bit older, so I thought, oh, well, he knows he's a grown-up, so maybe I should take notice of him. We wrote this song that I really wasn't that into. It was quite catchy. <clears throat> and then we were, we were in the studio recording it, and it came the time for me to sing the vocal. And it was it was one of the most disturbing times of my life because halfway through singing it, I just suddenly realized that it was the shittiest song ever. <laughs> and so I got to the end of the take and then he said, yeah, okay, a couple more takes. And I said, I, I, honestly, I just cannot sing that song anymore. It's a real mistake. And, uh, and I didn't, I don't know. I, I just dug my heels in and said, I'm not singing that song anymore. So eventually it got released it's just got this really lackluster. You could just hear somebody losing interest in the song <laughs> as it goes on. And I even kind of messed the words up at some point and I just wouldn't go in and redo it. So it's a strange thing. What was the track that turned the tide then? Was there a track or a moment or performance or album that like kind of brought you back from, brought you out of sort of, sort of the unsigned obscurity kind of where you were lingering for a bit? Yeah, I think what happened was, so we, like I say, we'd been around for a while. I left Sheffield because I could just feel that it was going nowhere. And people, the the, the final straw was the bass player, yet again, when uh, the bass player went and joined this kind of evangelical church that was right opposite where I was living at the time. And I just thought, oh, if I stay here, I'm going to end up in that church. <laughs> you could have been Doing a preacher. Yeah. 
stuff. So I just, I've got to get out of here. I've got to, I've got to escape. So I was lucky enough to be able to get a place at art college and, and went down and, and the band kind of went into suspended animation then. Um, we never really officially split up, but I was at college and stuff, but we were, we were kind of trying to work on a record. We still had a record deal with a, with a small indie label. Um, I'd been to a rave when I first got to London. It was like 1988, so it was when Acid House was first coming out. And I kind of went to a rave, and that blew my mind. Uh, Literally. It like an, <laughs> yeah, it was just such an amazing thing. You know, I, I didn't know that nightlife could be like that. So, so then we went back to this record that we were doing, and I said, we've got to embrace rave. So what that really boiled down to was that our poor drummer nick had to like learn how to program a drum machine and replace all his drums with this drum machine because we thought that made it sound modern and ravey yeah uh, but i'm getting round to the point now of the question that you actually asked which was was there a song that changed the tide and there was a song on that record called um my legendary girlfriend and that came out as a single just towards the end of me finishing college and uh, it got reviewed. I think it got like single of the week in the enemy. And that was like everything at that time. And so that was the beginning of the, of, of the tide turning and, and of things starting to happen. People actually seemed to want to listen to us, which was weird, you know, cause I'd, I'd kind of given up on, on the band really at that point. It, it's crazy. Like how you traversed like two of the most in- important cultural movements in recent times of of uh, in the uk because like obviously acid house in the late 80s early 90s was really important and then you were kind of like the, the the poster band for for Britpop. and what, what i find interesting because like i was technically alive during during the, the the both but i mean i was probably chewing on rusk so i don't really remember much about it um but they were completely opposite in terms of spirit and mood like acid house was all about love and like you know getting into a rave and not not trying to pull like you know what i mean just trying to dance and then Britpop was this like heady narcissism <laughs> like did you did you see that there there being a a tide shift for that to happen i don't i don't think that uh i mean i don't like to say that word the the b word but i don't think that it started off that way. I think, you know, the, it was indie music, really. You know, there'd been yeah. indie music. I suppose the Smiths, we've talked about before, were like the, the standard bearers for that. And there was the indie chart in the enemy. And like, if you got single of the week in enemy, that was a big thing. But but that scene was a small scene. And then suddenly around the early 90s, that scene started to get more mainstream attention and at the, at the start, that was very exciting because, you know, there was a lot of weirdos in indie bands. And it, and so it wasn't so kind of private jet. You know, it wasn't. It was still transit van at that point. Mm. And, it, and it seemed kind of exciting because you thought, well, maybe all these marginal chances. Yeah, because we used to go to, the, there was this club called Smashing, which was like a, it was a really good club. It was in a basement on Regent Street. 
It was a club that had been shut for ages. Apparently, it used to be called Eves in the 60s, and it had been where the Profumo affair happened, like where Lord Profumo first met Christine Keeler and all that kind of thing. It had had plastic fruit kind of stapled to the walls and this little (laughs) light-up dance floor. It was a brilliant place. And it was a really good club. It was like a real mixed crowd of, you know, just anybody could go there as long as they were kind of interesting. And um, and we, what we used to do, if we had to make a video, we would just look at the dance floor at Smashing and say, oh, well, yeah, it was just a shame. You know, it just, um, I don't know, it just got corrupted. And, um, and, and the fact that cocaine became the main drug on the scene didn't help because it, that isn't very good for uh, character development, that particular <laughs> substance. Um, but like what... what... But you need like it's it's a really really expensive like drug and it like almost like they say that certain drugs might, like you know uh, are the same as the as the as the times like so like you had ecstasy and acid rave you had cocaine and in Britpop would you agree to that? Yeah, it's a pity if it had been a more consciousness expanding thing rather than consciousness narrowing thing. Uh, it, it could have been a whole different thing. What's the, the the most ridiculous thing that you've heard somebody say when they were off their head? Um, <laughs> these lampshades are exquisite. <laughs> Maybe they were. They were all right, but it, <laughs> when you when you find yourself talking about lampshades, you know that something's yeah. gone wrong. You. I was thinking about this. I, I I was thinking about this actually not too long ago about the ba- the alternative bands that I like that end up going that that have success in the mainstream j- tend to have music that will, will the album will work for the adult, but there'll be a single that'll work for the kid. Um, mm. so like the whole family can listen to it and get and take different things out of it. It's like watching Father Ted or Only Fools and Horses or something. The kids watching it and enjoying it for a completely different reason that the adult is because adult gets it, um, and that's kind of how I felt because I was actually a legitimate massive pulp fan when I was seven. <laughs> when when I was like seven, um, different class came out and I was listening to Common People and Disco Two Thousand and not understanding anything about what they were about. It was just catchy and I enjoyed singing it. Yeah, but that's what pop music when it works properly it should be you know it, it it's and that's why i like dance music as well because dance music's working on those levels the bottom line is can you dance to it but then musically it can say anything and then the lyrics can put another thing on top of that and you can like you say you can just choose which bit you tune into <laughs> yeah i i remember that's good i remember our, like our house there was wood chip on the wall and i heard that in this in the <laughs> on the track and i was like we've got that <laughs> yeah that's it well that's a very popular line yeah when when pulp reformed and we did some shows <laughs> in 2011 uh i was wanting to sell woodchip wallpaper on the merch store i thought this would be the best merch ever but i got outvoted oh i think that's a, i think that's a really that's a big shame uh, i was going through like the like the side project 
uh, part of your Wikipedia, and it's the deepest side project headline or paragraph or prose or whatever it is um, that I've seen on anybody's. It's and yet I saw you say in an interview that you didn't think that your output was good enough. <laughs> I mean, from reading through it, it seems like it's perfectly more than adequate. All right. Well, that's very nice of you to say. I, I just. I just find I don't know when I look at how many records I've released. Like, like I think Paul Weller's got a record out this Friday, hasn't he? And I'm sure it said something like it's his thirty seventh album or something like that. And I just thought, well, I'm never going to catch up with him. <laughs> I think I've been involved in maybe ten records or something. So um, I guess that's what I think. I mean, I've been lucky to work with other people and do other stuff you know, occasional songs and things, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you, if songwriting is your business, you're always going to want to have done more of it because for me, songwriting, I don't, although I know it is my livelihood, I, it's also the way that I kind of find out things about myself and also about the world as well. So, uh, you know, so it's, I don't have a diary. It's like the nearest I've got to a diary as well. So I just wish that I'd done more of it, really. It not it like the the sort of balance of quality and quantity? Like I'm not saying Paul Weller hasn't got quality in those like all those albums that he does. I mean, Bob Dylan released an album last week or two weeks ago, and I, I listened to it, and it's really good. And it's from somebody. Well, I'm jealous, yeah, because I want to get that. But, yeah. you know, there's no record shops open around here, but I really want to get, because I, I, I heard the um, Murder Most Foul song, and I thought that was brilliant. It's fair. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Um, do you, you don't mess with the, the streaming platforms, your Spotify's or your Apple Music's? Well, well, I could do, but I, I suppose I just like to have a record. I, I don't know. I, I like that thing of putting it on the turntable and I like the fact that, you know, it'll be split over two sides or, or four sides or whatever. And that's almost like chapters of a book or something. For me, it seems like that's, you're not really listening to a record unless you listen to it that way. Um, I think that's why vinyls kind of had that resurgence lately is that I think that's the, that's its format. You know, things have got a format that work. And I think that's the best format for listening to recorded music. In my humble opinion, I know like uh, like people my age like have bought have started buying vinyl again, but I kind of question whether they're buying the vinyl as a fashion statement or as something that looks good in their flat, um, or they're well, actually buying it to play it. Well, yeah, it could be that, <laughs> but then they. But as I say, I never really fell out with it. I mean, I think the CD was just the worst idea ever. You know. It, they're just those horrible plastic cases that you only have to like drop it on the floor once, and then there's a big massive crack down the <laughs> middle totally of it. Screwed, and, yeah. and then you try and stack them up on top of each other, but they're a bit too slippy, so then they fall over, and it's just they're just horrible. And then also you put it on. Are you going to sit there for an hour and ten minutes listening to the same album? Not really. A bit boring. And and then all you've got to do is of like touched it slightly with your finger and then when you try and play it it's going it starts doing that thing so just rubbish plus that led to people being able to rip things and therefore post them on the internet and therefore kill the whole music industry so 
CDs were just the worst thing ever. And I'm glad that I will not mourn their passing. No. And I'm glad that I stuck with records in the interim. I, I agree. Like I, I, when I moved to London in 2012, I threw out, I threw out my whole CD collection, apart from any of the ones that were in mint condition. I gave them to charity shops, but like all the rest of them, I just uh, hemorrhaged them into a skip. And I didn't, mm. I didn't pass it to one tier. I don't have a CD at all now. And young bands, and I still, this still blows my mind in twenty twenty because I do a show where I get to pick my own music, and people still, young bands will still hand me a CD, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like what, what year is it? Like what, who's, what's going on? Like surely by this stage you should be able to just like plug a USB into the back of my head and I can hear it. I know, but then USBs, unless it's got. It's hard to know. At least a CD, I suppose you can write in felt tip the name of the band on it, and then when you're going through your carrier bag later on, you go, oh, yeah, that that bloke gave me that. But if you suddenly kind of get a USB stick out, you just think, ooh, did a spy give me that? You know, is that, has that got some, some state secrets on it yeah. or something? You don't really know what it, it doesn't. At least a CD, you've got that kind of vestigial kind of idea that it's round, so it kind of looks like a disc, so there's probably music on it. <laughs> Whereas a, a USB could just have anything on it. I, yeah, I have thought about that. Like There was a, a fella who handed me um, a USB in a club in, in Dublin, and he just looked really odd and a little bit a little bit off kilter. And mm. just, I don't know, like he just like, had this, that sort of like conspiracy theory vibe about him. Um, and when I went to go to plug it in to listen to it, because part of me was like sitting there going, I need to hear what this is, because this could be amazing, or it, it, I don't know, but I need to hear it. And then the other part of me was like going, God, he could be infecting my computer with viruses. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I, yeah, took, it, I, I took it my chance. Be malware. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was, although my laptop didn't last too long after that, so who knows. Um what I was going to say, yeah, like the the Harry Potter thing that you were in, right? Like, and I'm not going to talk too much about that, but I, I did like sort of have this daydream of what that actual band would sound like in real life with, because you, you, the, the fictional band in Harry Potter was you and uh, members of Radiohead, members of Pulp, members of Relax Muscle. And then I was like getting to think going, God, that band would be really good. I'd love to see that band in real life. Yeah, it was, it was, we were quite good. Um, and we had a few rehearsals. Um, it was a strange thing that because we were supposed to be called the Weird Sisters, because that's the name of the band in JK Rowling's book. But then something weird happened. I think there was a lesbian folk duo from Canada who had the same name. And they threatened to sue if they used the name Weird Sisters. So then we became known as the band with no name, which was the lamest thing ever. And um, I don't know. I can't, it's, it's a long time ago that I, we, we had good fun recording the music for sure. And, and the best fun of, of all was when we actually went to the film set and did it because they had all these extras there. We were actually on set for, I think, for three days. And for that whole three days, we had like 300 people screaming at us like we were the Beatles for three days. It was just like amazing. <laughs> it's hard to beat. Mm. Um, six Music, 
how do you uh, do you miss it like do you, did you enjoy like making that ticket? obviously you must have because you did it for seven ish years but like it was an appointment yeah. to listen every every sunday that show well thank you well like you were saying about your show it's amazing when you are just allowed to pick whatever music you want to play and 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 more than that i also managed you know i was allowed to like read stories and sometimes i would interview people like i you know i got to interview david attenborough once you know which was brilliant so yeah i loved doing that show it was it was and especially also with it being on a sunday afternoon because you know what happens on a sunday afternoon i like the fact that it's that kind of weird kind of dead zone in the week where nothing can really happen so maybe people would be prepared to just like lie down on the settee and listen to me ramble on for an hour or so you know uh and the whole idea was to try and create some kind of mellow atmosphere so that if you'd been up too late the night before, you could just kind of settle into this nice fluffy cloud with with little poems and soft songs and things like that. And it was great. I got to create that environment and, um, and loved it, yeah. But it kind of, um, I guess it ran its course eventually. Well, I kind of gave it up in the end because I wanted to, I kind of felt that if I didn't really apply myself to getting another record ready, then maybe I would never ever make another record in my life. And I would be kind of done in by that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it would have been counterproductive for sex music, wouldn't it? Like be, it's great having you on the station, but it might be even better to like actually have some music of yours to play on it. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I've still got ties. Like during the lockdown, I did do this thing, these really short, like 10 minute things, which were called Jarvis in the house. And basically all that was, was during the lockdown, I thought, well, people are probably getting a bit claustrophobic. So I'll try and make them see their house in a slightly more exciting manner. So each week I would go into a different room. Like I think we started in the kitchen uh, and we had an adventure in the kitchen. And then we went and had an adventure in the bathroom and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and that was just like a little feature that was in the afternoon show. I mean, like you've definitely said like you've you've like approached the the pandemic and the lockdown with the with the right attitude, getting the positivity out of it instead of just being sort of bowed down by it. Have you found that like it's hampered the the release or made it better of uh, of your Jarvis like um release that's coming out in September has it well it, well no no it's coming out in July now it's oh is it okay like, sorry yeah, it's coming out in just over two weeks time uh, which I'm quite excited about normally people don't release records in the summer but I guess the thinking is that most people will still be at home because they probably can't afford to go on holiday you know mm. so uh, we're gonna release it then um well it hampered it in in such a way as we had to cancel our tour which was a massive pain and then we haven't been able to play together as a band like you know we've had a few zoom conversations and the very first zoom that we had we thought oh well this is it we could play together now we're all on the same computer screen how did that work and then as soon as you start trying to make some noise you realize that there's all these different time lags going on so you just sound like 
it basically sounded like our very first rehearsals when I was 14, when you just don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and now we've, I've got very accomplished musicians in the band now, so I knew there was something wrong. So uh, that's been a track. We, we've tried to counteract that by doing a bit of a like musical consequences game where one member of the band will record a musical idea and then send it to another member and they add a bit and then they pass it on to the next member. We've kind of done a couple of songs that way. And that's kept us going a bit. That's that sounds quite fun. Is anything sort of good come out of it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether we'll release them eventually, but it just kept us going and communicating with each other in in a kind of pleasurable way. And I hope that they might turn into proper songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what what is the what's the story with the record? Because obviously this is you getting a band back together for the for the first time in, in quite some time. Yeah, that's true, and that's that was that was the key to it, really. All all through those that time when I'd been doing the radio show and stuff, I, I'd still been coming up with ideas for songs, but never quite finishing them. And then I I kind of forced my own hand, basically. I, I was invited to go and play a festival in Iceland. That group Sigur Ross, they were having their own festival in Reykjavik. And they invited me and I I was on the verge of turning it down because I didn't have a band. And then I just, on the spur of the moment, I just said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And then suddenly panicked and realized, okay, (laughs) I've said I'm going to do it. I better get a band then. And I was lucky, you know, Serafina and Emma, the women in the band, I'd produced a record for Serafina. So uh, I knew that I really liked her musicianship and songwriting. So she said she'd be in it and we just got it together quickly and as soon as that happened it was like as you know the very first time that we actually had a rehearsal these songs that I'd been kind of sweating over and wondering about for ages suddenly came alive and I thought well why didn't I think of that like six years ago you know it's a bit crazy I've been in a band most of my adult life why didn't I just realize that was the way to go forward but yeah, but sometimes you've got to miss it to realise what you're missing, right? <clears throat> no, I think that there is something in that. There is something in that that you, you can get a bit blasé or a little bit blind to stuff. and Or just uh, fuck, fucked yeah. off with the people in the band. Sometimes you need to freshen it up and go and try stuff with other people. Yeah, and then as soon as you do that, and then the next stage of that was then we went and played those songs before we'd recorded them, before they were really totally finished, really to audiences we did we did we played small shows and and some of the record actually the basic tracks got recorded at some of those shows so again in a weird way we accidentally did something that you know it's not possible for a band to record that way now because nobody can play shows you know so Mm -hmm. we we actually made use of that live experience Uh, so i'm really glad that we kind of did that well Glad and not glad, because obviously I'm not glad that we're in the middle of a pandemic, which means that we can't play concerts anymore. But at least we took advantage of it whilst it was there. Is uh, House Music All Night Long going to be on the album? It is. It's the first track on side two. Boom. Um, how, how do you like this? I, I've just like typed in, um, like because I, I was listening to your music earlier and i got sent i think i got sent the album about like literally about an hour before this so i've been listening to bits and pieces of it but on your on your spotify your fans also like is 
Jarvis Cocker is the, is the number one. <laughs> Where do they get this stuff from? What? Which is it says, what, what's on so Spotify? When you type in Jarvis, right, and you've got house music all night long open, yeah. there's a column It says fans also like Jarvis Cocker, Tim Burgess, yeah. Jenny Beth, BC Camplight, Nadine Shah, Baxter Jury, and the Orioles. Yeah, I know. Well, we had trouble with that. Obviously, the band is called My Name in a slightly changed version, but uh-huh. it's all down to those algorithms that we're always being told about. You know, as a person, you can definitely tell that Jarvis and Jarvis are the same thing, but a computer won't know that. The the, the punctuation throws it off the scent. <laughs> it just shows when people talk about, you know, AI is taking over. It's not that clever. <laughs> I'm going to tell that to Elon Musk. Yeah, do. <laughs> um, listen, I've taken up loads of your time. Um, thank you for coming on the the Slacker podcast. Good, uh, good luck with the the record, and thanks for for helping us all smile through a, a pr- pretty shitty year. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.